G'day, Osha here. Thanks for downloading the show. Jordan Raskopoulos is on today. Now, uh, what do I normally pop in here to tell you? I normally pop in here to tell you that. Uh, podcast, as you know, they're free to listen to, but they're not free to make. And um, I have been for many years now utilising the extraordinary services of Andy Marr and Rachel Barrett to help me make this show. Couldn't make it without them. Uh, those people, though, have an incredible set of skills that are deservant of cash in return for the hours they spend using those sets of skills. And so occasionally you'll hear an ad. Now, if you don't hear an ad, bloody good for you. That's to do with where you sit in the world, how you listen to the show, whatever. But if you do hear an ad, it might even be me. It might even be me selling you something. Thank you for helping me pay Andy and Rachel. So without further ado, here is an or is not an ad, and then you're going to hear Jordan. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I'm furious when people say... There are only two genders. It's basic biology. And I'm like, biology is complicated. It is far from basic. If you are talking about basic biology, then you are talking about biology that is taught to children. There is incredible amounts of diversity. And the very nature of science is not to determine the rules and then instruct people to obey them. It is to notice patterns and try and infer systems and commonalities and, and things from it. But the very basis of science is if you notice something that contradicts your previous understanding, that calls your previous understanding into question. And you're constantly reassessing your previous understandings. You're constantly reclassifying. You're constantly changing and learning. That is the backbone of science. There are not two genders because we observe me. There is difference. There is nuance. There is more than you know because you have suddenly confronted it. That is musician, writer, actor, comedian, and live streamer, Jordan Raskopoulos. And this is episode, episode 367 of Better Than Yesterday.
Hello and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. Episode 367. 367! Man, 400 is coming up fast! Uh, Jordan Raskopoulos is on the show today. Cannot wait for you to hear this conversation with her. You can find Jordan twitch.tv slash Jordan Rasko, J-O-R-D-A-N-R-A-S-K-O. More about Jordan and her ex- excellent work in just a moment. If you've never listened to this show, welcome. It's a show called Better Than Yesterday. Something that you hear on this show today is guaranteed to help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. That's the promise of the show. That's what we're here to do. I'm here every Monday and Friday. Mondays, I'm here with a guest. Fridays, I'm here with you. As you heard me mention earlier, there's 366 other episodes, uh, other conversations with other people that will all help you make today better than yesterday. I certainly hope you enjoy diving into them. And of course, I'm also here every Friday, which is just me chatting with just you. Uh, There's another podcast I do with Charlie Clawson. It's called Dad Pod. So if uh, you're a dad or thinking about being a dad or have a dad or want to be a dad or there's a dad in your life or you just want to hear two dads talk about being dads and pretend that we're your dads, whatever. Uh, It's called Dad Pod, and uh, I'm really proud of it. Two seasons are out now, and uh, you can go and have a listen to it. Uh, Who am I? I'm Osher Ginsberg. I'm a uh, TV host and an author and a podcaster and a live streamer from Sydney. I'm currently, I've got, what have I got? I've got two kids, uh, too many bikes, one wife, two dogs, and only one of my own hips. Yes, I now have a hip. That didn't used to belong to me, but now does. And it's now in my body. Just pretty weird. Don't know where the old hip went. They wouldn't let me keep it, even though it was mine. They wouldn't let me keep my old hip. Chopped it off, took it away. Wouldn't let me keep it. Most annoyed. I did get to keep a 3D printout of it. And when you hold it in your hand, you're like, no wonder it hurts so much. Because <laughs> it's pretty lumpy. But yeah, I'm recovering from hip surgery. What is it? What day is it now? Hang on. Uh, Friday. So Thursday was day zero. So Friday was day one. So I'm 10 days post-surgery. This is me, 10 days post-surgery, and I'm down to one crutch, and um, it's okay. Um, I'll tell you more about that in a second. Just wanted to say thank you very much for anyone that did email me. I'm very grateful. I do read every email. I don't get a chance to write back to every email, but I definitely read every email. Send Osher email at gmail.com. That's where you can find me. That's really the best way to get to me. Uh, You can get me through Instagram. Haley, make sure I see it. But yeah, I'm not on Facebook. I know everyone's on Facebook, not this guy. So I'm probably missing out on fuck tons of revenue. I'm probably missing out on heaps of growth for the show. Couldn't care. Don't care. Don't want to participate in it. So that's how you find me. Send us your email at gmail.com and you will beep right into my pocket (laughs) if you need me. Uh, Thanks very much to Hannah, who sent a glorious, glorious, glorious couple of photos from uh, Whangarei in uh, New Zealand. And it is just, I hope I said that right, Glory, just absolutely beautiful. Um, she's uh, said that she's a uh, uh, found your podcast a couple of days ago at work, really enjoyed them. Took them out for a long walk, which really helped clear the head. Uh, the walks helped me push pause on normal life and take time for being me. Full time work and study, I, I really treasure a couple of hours just to focus on my mental health. And um, the pictures are just incredible. I don't know if you've ever spent any time in New Zealand, but boy, oh boy, oh boy, the 
that I there's this beautiful kind of oh that's a baby baby waking up better hurry up with this podcast that's a baby just waking up okay I better hurry up because he's going to be hungry for lunch soon go back to sleep for a little while son beautiful so thank you very much for sending me those, those beautiful pictures of that little bay that you've sent me there send us your email at gmail.com to check in real quick before Wolfie wakes up and I've got to go I'm off most of the pain medication in fact I'm recording this right now oh shit he's really waking up uh, I'm recording this right now with pretty much nothing on board no I woke up I didn't take any yeah, so I'm sitting here 10 days after surgery with nothing. But it can be a bit of a slippery slope, those pain meds. I stopped taking the, the really heavy ones a little while back. But, you know, I know what to do. I've got to stay accountable. So the first person I told was Audrey that or part of my brain wants to grab another box of these. And um, then, you know, I'm, the best way that I know how to, to make sure that I wouldn't slip is to just tell as many people as possible. So... Um, just be accountable, basically. And so I, I got on the Zooms and I, I, I went to a, a, a meeting of the fellowship that I'm a part of and I told those people to, and that's the, that's the best way that I know to stay on point. And I think it's really important. If, if there's something that you uh, have in your life that you, you don't want to do an old habit or whatever, just tell other people. So look, I'm just letting you know that my brain's trying to tell me to do this, but I don't want to, but I'm telling you. So that way, when it comes up again, you're like, oh, fuck now, I've told someone shit. So if I, I'm not only disappointing myself, I'm going to disappoint them as well. I just, I just told heaps of people. <laughs> so far it's worked, you know, but it's only a day. Um, I'm back to training the best I can. Hard to do with uh, legs that don't work, but I did start rehab on my hip. You know me, I'm not really content with, you know, just a regular plan. I'm like, okay, what's the very best thing that I can do? So they just send me a little, a little full scap handout that I was supposed to take home and you know, just do these exercises, you'll be fine. I'm like, yeah, that's for people who just want to walk. I want to get on my bike and ride for like five hours at a time or I want to like do 100 kilo back squats. Like what does a guy like that need to do for rehab? So I went and found the rehab guy that my surgeon used to use or normally uses. I saw that I had some sessions left on the health insurance and I headed up there. And so we've started that. If I could say that on that, words of advice to you from Ruth Ginsburg, my now late mother, she used to say to me, no matter what, even when I was unemployed, she said, no matter what, always keep a policy of the most expensive health insurance that you can afford. Go ahead, skimp on other things, but not on your health. And so this has allowed me to be able to make that choice around getting my hip back on board. Uh, so I've taken to that with a plumb, but he has warned me. He says, like, people like you, the biggest problem is they do too much too fast. So I pretty much just did upper body today. But just like rolling around on the ground with the baby this morning, 100 face pulls with a elastic band and a hundred push-ups just rolling around on the floor in between sets and I got, the, got it done just spent half an hour in between playing with Wolfie it's good felt heaps better afterwards um, very very quickly uh, before I get to my guest I'm back on Cameo I'm trying to raise money for World Bicycle Reef Relief this Christmas so if there's somebody you want to say Merry Christmas to somebody you want to say hi to somebody you want to say goodbye to somebody you want to I don't know give a job to leave a job uh, say thanks, say thanks for a big year, whatever it is, uh, have me announce the winner of your trivia competition, propose to somebody. I've done all of these things and more. Find me on Cameo and all the proceeds are going to go to World Bicycle Relief, which is a very, very important charity. So before we get to Jordan, if conversations about neurodiversity are interesting to you, check out episode 340 with Dr. Mark Cross, who wrote a book called Anxiety, Expert Advice from a Neurotic Shrink Who Lived with Anxiety All His Life. Here's just a little taste. What's the evolutionary reason for us having anxiety, right? 
It actually is to survive. The problem is this survival adrenaline instinct, which you should have when a pack of lions is coming running to you in the savannah. And you don't need it because you're just trying to watch television with your family or you, you know, walking with your dog. That's the difference. And it's really horrible, but I tell you, it's really interesting. I had a friend if I mean that day, he just had a panic attack. And he went, Do you mean to say that you and your patients you see experience this sort of stuff all the time? I said, Yes, they do. And actually, after all this, people like you and others will suddenly realize what mental health actually means. I'm hoping that's going to be the case. And I think it will be. Because, as you quite rightly said earlier, wow, everyone's feeling this now. So scroll back in your podcast feed and check that one out. That's episode 340 with Dr. Mark Cross. I hope you enjoy it. So let me tell you about my guest today. Jordan Raskopoulos is an actor, singer, writer, and live streamer from Australia. She first came to prominence as part of the TV show, The Ronnie John's Half Hour, and then with her band, Axis of Awesome. They had great success. They toured the world back again. They did huge things. Jordan is also one of Australia's most prolific and creative live streamers. You can find Jordan most days, actually, on twitch.tv slash Jordan Rasko, J-O-R-D-A-N-R-A-S-K-O. You can watch her stream of consciousness, visually creative feast just pouring out onto your screen, reacting live and in real time to her audience, creating something completely unique in the space of of entertainment. I'm watching a baby grind his gums on the top of the cot, just so you know. I'm going to have to get down there with some Panadol in a sec. Anyway, you've heard me start to talk more and more about Twitch and live streaming in the last few months because I firmly believe that me starting on Twitch now is like me starting a podcast back in 2013. I was late to the party then, but seven years later, it's just now exploding into the mainstream podcasting, that is. So let me tell you now, live streaming is the new future of visual entertainment. And I'm not saying TV and movies and sport and reality shows. I'm not saying that stuff will go away, not at all. But just like radio kind of got hammered and is absorbing podcasting to the point where some radio networks in Australia now have separate, an entirely separate podcasting division, dedicated sales teams to podcasting, this new format. You'll see TV networks, perhaps even production companies start to create live streaming divisions just to capture some of the eyeballs that are being drawn by this visually stimulating, intellectually arousing, community-driven experience of live entertainment. It's going to happen. So go and explore. You'll find something that you're into. You have no idea how much you wanted to watch four hours of someone carving until you jumped on Twitch. It's pretty good. Now, this conversation did take place just a few short weeks ago, and I couldn't be happier to have Jordan on the show. She's a truly wonderful human, and one we are all lucky has her extraordinary skill set of communication because her tale of neurodiversity and gender identity is one that needs to be told. It's one that needs to be heard. Thankfully, she can use her abilities as a communicator to share with us her experience so that we may perhaps appreciate what others in her situation are dealing with. Now, there is a moment here in the chat where you'll hear me make a bit of a slip up because when I did first meet Jordan back in the day, this was back, I think it was on Good News Week in 2009, something around there, um, Jordan had a beard. Jordan was a man. Jordan now does not have a beard, nor will ever, ever have a beard ever again, and Jordan is now a woman. She's written quite a lot about her experience of gender identity under the pseudonym Nicola Fierce, and I'd encourage you 
to explore her essays. Uh, I certainly learned a lot. But yeah, I, def- I left that slip up in because it's, it's, it's interesting. The way she deals with it is nothing but grace and kindness and acceptance of my stumbliness. But uh, yeah, I left it in there because it's just beautiful. Um, she's really great. Also, look up her TED Talk because the way she describes anxiety, high-function anxiety, and being on stage with that high-functioning anxiety is pretty much exactly how I experience it. Like, I know I've said this many times before, I'm no special snowflake, but it's always nice to hear another person speaking about their mental health in a way that challenges my brain's constant looping messaging that, oh, you're the only one going through this, no one knows what it's like, fucking bullshit. You are just another bog-standard person who has the same stuff as everybody. So do yourself a favour, sign up for a Twitch account, and go and find Jordan Rasko, J-O-R-D-A-N-R-A-S-K-O. You have no idea what you're looking at when you first watch it. Just log in and have a look, and slowly you'll get the hang of it. And enjoy this chat with Jordan Raskopoulos. How are you, Jordan? Yeah, really good. Really good. Really good. Now, for people who are just listening to this as a podcast, I hope they understand that I'm speaking with Jordan Raskopoulos today, and Jordan is sitting aloft Falcor as Falcor soars, soars through the clouds. Mm. And it's magnificent. It's magnificent to see. I mean, it could be the clouds or it could be also be, a, you know, a vapor wave, disco scene, wherever we need to go. There's a lot of background action going on. It's, it's magnificent. Jordan, I'm so grateful that we could speak today. And thanks for taking the time to do this because <laughs> I was having lunch with Audrey and I was trying to explain to her what your Twitch stream looks like. And... I was, I was trying to say what's, what's extraordinary about what Jordan does with Twitch is she, you're basically seeing her stream of consciousness as it occurs in direct reaction to the audience. It is as participatory as art can be that I've seen. And it, when I was watching you for the first time, it just blew my mind, the participatory nature of the art. And that's extraordinary because we're here on this bleeding edge of where technology has allowed us to create participatory art in a way that's never been around mm. before. Totally. I mean, I, I, there is an intimacy to live streaming that is greater than uh, a theatre, I feel like. And you kind of, when you first come to the, the medium, you kind of think it's the opposite. You think you're so detached. You're thousands of kilometres away potentially from your audience and um, you're not sharing the same physical space. But th- the fact that you are reacting in real time, that you can have multiple conversations with everybody who's watching. They can speak directly without interrupting what you're doing in your performance, allowing you to, you know, improvise and react in a way that is not possible on stage. Yeah. But what's also extraordinary is the way that it's the classic, what's his name? Del Close? Del... Oh, yeah. Del Close. Del Close. It's you are at the top of your intelligence at all times. You draw upon the sharpened blade of every skill set that you have, song, dance, timing, comedy. Like it's you are playing at the very top of your game as far as improvisation goes in that space reacting to those stimuli. And it's fucking amazing. That at the same time, I think I wrote, um, it's like masturbating straight into a stream deck and, and, and oh, jizzing yeah. their consciousness all over my screen. And I mean, it's fucking amazing. Multiple, in multiple stream decks. There's two. Oh, what? <laughs> And I've also got a mixing desk. Oh, man. Okay, so we're, we're talking about pieces of technology that yeah. allow, basically allow pictures and images and sounds to fly across yeah. the screen in real time. And if you've never explored live streaming, it's not just 
people playing first-person shooters going, I'm going to get this fucking kill shot. Oh, you fucking pussy. It's not that. I mean, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of Um, that. But I feel like the space, particularly, I mean, I first came to streaming a little over a year ago, and it was just sort of like, I'm a gamer, I like playing games, and the Goose game had just come out. And my friend Dave, Dave Harmon, who's the um, Dungeon Master for the Dragon Friends podcast, uh, he was like, you know, you've been talking about streaming. You should stream the Goose game. And, you know, I did that and, you know, did voices for the Goose and, and had a lot of fun. And then sort of, you know, stuck around Twitch a bit more. And then once I sort of started seeing streamers who were using the tools that were available to do all sorts of kind of weird narrative and absurd, you know, and animation and, and stuff like that, and really inspired me to go, oh, well, actually, you know, I've got video editing skills. I've got programming skills. I've got you know, performance skills and improv skills. What can I make in this space with the tools that are available? And the, the fun thing for me, the, the real joy for me, is that the tools that are available aren't made for what I want to do. They're all um, how to transition your scene from the, the, the game footage to a picture of you, you know, the um, very simple transitions and, and motion and stuff. But if you kind of program hundreds of those back-to-back, string them all together, you can actually get, you know, fluid animation, reactive stuff and things that people in the in the audience can control on screen. And it's kind of like, you know, you're trying to paint, but you don't have paint or paintbrushes. You've got to improvise with the tools, not just the performance as well. <laughs> it's so, And it's so extraordinary because I think, you know, we live in this age, and this is the thing that, you know, my, I don't know, my great-great-grandmother Great-great-grandmother? No, my great-great-great-grandmother, her life would have been pretty much exactly the same as her mum's, all right? And mm. the same same with my great-great-great-grandfather. Their life would have been pretty much exactly the same as, as their father's, you know? But the difference between what we can expect technologically to change within our lifetimes is so different now. And in my own lifetime, I mm. have seen... Just the number of the vast number of broadcast mediums and ways of expression at scale changed so much from analog television and radio and newspaper and film. That was it. Mm. And then video. And suddenly the distribution model changes and, you know, the ability, the the barrier to entry gets lower. And then home video and the battery to entry gets even lower. And then this explosion of digital communication and now the barrier to entry it, it doesn't exist yeah. we have if we are if we want the ability to communicate with just as many people as any mm. major network there's the gatekeepers have vanished but what it puts the focus back on is like just because everyone can shoot 4k 1080p on their phone doesn't mm. make everyone steven spielberg all right totally totally i mean i think i think the, the barriers to entry thing i mean the, the barriers were were dropping for consumers in a lot of ways but i think i think for creators the, the barrier dropped so much in the last let's say six or seven years i think i think Maybe ten years when, when, like the Canon 5D Mark II was when that came out, which was a, which is a DSLR camera that could shoot HD video, and suddenly you didn't need a twenty thousand dollar camera to make a film. You needed no. a three thousand dollar camera and in a Canon lens, you know, and a, a normal point and click yeah. DSLR, which was you know, which which suddenly made filmmaking so much cheaper for people, and that was around. 2009, mid, mid, 2008, yeah, 2009 is when I got my 5D Mark II. But yeah, you're right. It was the first. I mean, other other cameras could shoot that, but when you blew mm. it up and you put it on a cinema screen, it looked shit. Totally, and it was totally. very clearly not shot on a film camera. You know, and 
you know, from that point, you could edit on a MacBook. And mm-hmm. those barriers, those creative barriers have just become smaller and smaller. You, you know, you shoot 4K on, on phones, yeah. you know, and who knows? Yeah. What, 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 what's... <laughs> But it's, I once saw a billion years ago, I used to be really obsessed a long time ago. I was 13, 14. Mm. You know, we all did things we regret. I was obsessed with the early work of Pink Floyd, the uh, 22-minute-long mm. psychedelic trip kind of, you know, just wild guitar noises and stuff like that. And I was sitting down having, having an interview with an extraordinarily stoned David Gilmore, who was a lead guitar player. And he was speaking and, you know, it's so, so long. It's exactly what we're talking about. You can hear the film canister whirring. You can hear the 16 mm. mil film canister whirring over the microphone sound. And he goes, it's not like, you know, so yeah, we use a lot of gear. We use synthesizers and things, but it's not like you can go and buy a Gibson Les Paul and you become Eric Clapton. There's mm. a very big difference between having the thing and then creating the thing. And I think that's what I I guess the point I'm trying to make is that here now we have this point where the barrier to entry is gone, the gatekeepers are largely, have largely vanished, and it is the onus is upon the creator to to then create the most authentic, incredible cut through content and tell the best story. And that will be your success. Not, you know, being chosen, deemed, this is the person the film studio will put a promo behind and put your face on the side of a bus. I don't think the gatekeepers are quite as absent as one would like. I think the, the gatekeepers kind of establish themselves on media platforms after the media platforms have got a, a bit of success. I don't think that's quite happened on Twitch yet. I think it's probably coming. It's definitely happened on YouTube. It's very hard to be a new creator and create things on YouTube now. If you found your feet 10 years ago on YouTube and built a following, but it's very hard to, to build on YouTube in the same way it is, and it's getting harder on Twitch. Um, I, I think the really interesting thing, just to kind of take it back to 13 and 14-year-olds, is TikTok and the instinct that so many young creators have for comic timing, for video editing, for genre parody, that young people have consumed so much media that they just have this instinct for tropes that, is incredible and fantastic and so exciting. And uh, seeing what, you know, 13 and 14 year olds are making now and what they will be able to make as mature artists is, is really, really exciting. And someone might go, oh, they're just copying what they saw. That's not original. Well, allow me to point you to the work of one Mr. Q Tarantino, who <laughs> Pulp Fiction is simply a bunch of scenes strung together from films that he'd watched or stories that he'd read. <clears throat> and it's just rabbiting that, parodying that. Totally. And I mean, that's that's nostalgia, right? Yeah. You know, creating music from samples, like, you know, the, you know, like the avalanches or even Kanye West. And, and you know, we are talking about the, the idea of, of sampling and making transformative works is very much... Uh, class thing as well that people from working class backgrounds don't have access to musical instruments or you know, necessarily have access to musical instruments or um or the uh, your parents who can afford 10 years of training exactly all that kind of stuff and so that is the art that working class people make it is transformative and it is insight and it is nostalgic and it's it's valid totally yeah i mean that's i mean so much of what i do on twitch is you know, cutting and pasting elements from films and movies and, and, you know, particularly 80s and 90s pop culture. And I have a sequence on my on my stream, I don't know if you've seen it, where I, I sit in the car from Street Fighter 2 and um, the people watching and make donations to make... Uh, oh, that's right, you had uh, to beat the car up, that's right. Yeah, yeah and you got to bash the car up. And so they can summon different characters to jump in on this scene uh, and attack the car uh, and destroy it over time. And that's all, you know, I go into the, uh, the, the software of, of 
80s and 90s games. I cut out all the uh, sprites and then I, I sequence them together to make little animations and things like that. So you actually can dismantle the code. You're that kind of guy, uh, that kind of um, person. Sorry, I fucked up the pronoun already. I, fucking hell, look at that. 14 minutes. Fuck. <laughs> That's not bad. It's not bad. Yeah, I mean, I mean, a lot of, a lot of, there are a lot of people in this space who who do that. So I often will find sprite sheets uh, that other people have already cut out. Uh, but sometimes, if they don't exist, then I, I will either screen capture them or I will try and like, pull the ROM apart or something like that. I'm sorry, I messed up the pronoun there, Jordan. I swear, don't make it a big deal. Okay, I'm just. <laughs> oh, yeah. I grew up. I grew up in fucking weird Queensland, and because I was talking with you, I had lunch with my wife just before this, and in, in talking with her about what it was to speak with you, and how important it was to speak with you, I just became so extraordinarily aware of the conditioning that I have. Mm. That as much as I want to be, you know, as empathetic and kind and loving and em- embracing and inclusive and kind, and have my automatic thoughts about anyone who isn't doesn't look like me or doesn't have my experience or my background or my upbringing or my, I want my automatic thoughts to be positive and forward and full of love and compassion and empathy. I still don't think I can escape the conditioning and the programming that I received over the first, you know, 18 or so years of my life around anyone who isn't heteronormative. I mean, I don't think anybody, um, unless they've, they've grown up in the here and now, I think everybody shares those instincts to a degree. I think a lot about the phrase, I don't have a racist bone in my body, which I, I, I you know, you often hear from celebrities once they've done something racist yeah. and their response is to say, oh, I don't have a racist bone in my body. And that always puzzles me because as a reasonably woke person, as someone who often is employed to be other people's wokeness barometer, I absolutely have a racist bone in my body. It is not a big bone. It's probably a small bone in my ear, but there are absolutely, there are instincts. There are ways that I treat people that I sometimes don't think about. And what makes me a good person is the fact that I I notice it and I say, okay, well, that is a part of me that I'm not proud of. That is that instinct there, but I'm making a conscious decision to change it. I I absolutely have a racist bone in my body. I I have a transphobic bone in my body. I have a a homophobic bone in my body. They're, They're all in there. And some of them, came from uh, education, some of them came from, you know, osmosis through the way that we've behaved or, or grown up in the societies we live. Some of them may very well be innate uh, and, and maybe th- throwbacks to uh, the way that cultures lived in a time that had different technologies and different dangers and different ways of being. Nevertheless, we are human beings. We are rational and thoughtful creatures. We can analyse those things within ourselves. And if we find that they are unkind, and if we find that they uh, harm uh, others and harm society, then we can make the conscious decision to try and act differently. So I think anyone without that instinct who, who feels like they don't have that instinct is probably um, in danger if they're not noticing negative things that they do because we all do it. We all want to try and understand each other, but we all don't. I see it so much in learning what I learn. And it's not like it was deliberate. It's not like my parents or the people around me went, okay, now, every time you see an Aboriginal person, we want you to think of this. Like, that's not what happened. It just, because I see with our baby boy, Wolfie, he's Hmm. just turned one and it's really simple. Something happens, something gets dropped or, you know, a door opens that hasn't been opened yet or whatever. And Wolf will look to check. He will see, okay, well, how should I react to this? Because he doesn't know. He checks mm. the adults in the room or the other people in the room. He looks to see what their reactions are. And if they're scared, he'll get scared. If they're cool, he's cool. If they're upset, he'll cry. You know, he doesn't know what it is. He mm. simply mirrors what we do. 
And so we try to stay as calm as possible or whatever, <laughs> no matter what happens. But I'm pretty sure that's kind of how it happens. It's not like I'm, I'm particularly blaming on one particular person in my life. Mm. It's just that's what the punchlines to all the jokes were, particularly at the all boys private Christian brothers school that I went to. Yeah. And the hilarity that ensued when I think someone went to schoolies, I can't really recall, you know, where there was a story mm. that filtered down about someone's big brother who went to schoolies and got a blowjob from a sex worker who turned out to be a trans woman. Mm-hmm. And then that's it. And that was the the name that got, oh, you fucking, yeah. That yeah. was his last name became the ha-ha, you got a blowjob from somewhere to penis, therefore whatever. Yeah. And that was hilarious when I was 12 or 13. I mean, that's the thing. I I, I feel like, you know, when thinking about comedy and, you know, I don't like to use the phrase political correctness because the phrase political correctness is only ever uh, uh, used by people who are, you know, awful. Um, (laughs) Being called out for their lack of it, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. Uh, (laughs) It's never never been coined by uh, progressive people. It's always been used to denigrate those who are trying not to be cruel. But look, I remember, you know, don't do jokes about X, Y, or Z. It's not funny is often a phrase people say. And, and jokes about X, Y, or Z are funny. Um, something being funny is is not um, mutually exclusive from something being cruel or inappropriate. But I, I think, again, it's we got to recognise, yeah, it is funny to put someone down to make someone feel like shit, and that's what we need to tackle. Uh, the fact that we find humour in, in those sorts of things and I don't think we are going to progress unless we focus on the empathy uh, rather than whether a joke is funny or not. Because for a, uh, to be honest, a young cisgender white male comic, you go and say, don't do jokes about X, it's not funny. They're going to go, well, I've got one that is funny. Or they're going to see it as a challenge. But if you go, yeah, you can be funny, but you could hurt somebody. Comedy is like juggling. You can get a great reaction going out and juggling some chainsaws if you want. But if you don't have a delicate touch, you don't have an understanding of the di- dynamics between people, you could hurt somebody. And that might be yourself and that might be someone in the audience. And you have you are responsible for that at the end of the day. And you need to be able to accept that those responsibilities. I, I don't like to tell anyone they can't do jokes about any topic, but I do like to instill in people that they are responsible for what they say. And if they hurt themselves or hurt their career, then they need to wear that responsibility and so they need to be cautious i guess it's the thing you can hide behind going oh it's the audience was off tonight yeah ah, oh, the audience like I mean, you may or may not have known that there was someone in the front row that experienced a horrible sexual assault and your your zinger opening rape joke just kind of went down bad with her and her partner Absolutely. and when they got up and left it kind of turned the room and that's the thing is it might not turn the room as no. well you might you might kill with something you know, with an inappropriate joke, but you also might still hurt somebody in the audience who's had that experience or is from that background. And you need to assess whether that laughter is worth that hurt. And sometimes it is. If I go out, there are people that I intend to offend. And if I go out and I offend them, good, fucking coppers. But I don't want to hurt people who don't deserve it. I've seen you. I've seen you work on stage, and it's fucking mm-hmm. brilliant. And I did kind of get the sense that you got, you did get tickled by how uncomfortable some of the material you had made people. I, I did get the idea that you know oh, I'm sure. just going to make you fucking squirm trying to think about <laughs> me and my penis. Mm-hmm. All right, that was it. That and it was it was great. You could hear the bums squirming in the chairs. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, that's the thing is, I, it is, 
it's a tightrope act. And I had one you know a person on Facebook that I was talking about comedy and 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 things like that, and she's like, ah. Oh. I always thought you never held back. I'm really surprised that you've got this attitude. And I'm like, well, that's what I want you to believe. I want you as the audience member to feel like I'm, I'm pushing all the buttons and I'm crossing the boundaries and I'm, I'm you know, and you, you really, it's really naughty and um, transgressive to be enjoying this. But I'm an expert and I'm an artist and I know that where to tread to actually do damage. And I fuck up sometimes, absolutely. And it's about, listening when people say that, you know, I don't know what everyone's experience is. I don't know what everyone's uh, sensitivities are. And if someone says, Hey, well, I mean, I had an example. I, I had a, a variety night I programmed in Sydney uh, and I called the night Cirque du Soleil um, because I, I thought it was funny, you know, and I mean, you know, lame is empathetic, but I had a number of disability advocates get in touch saying, Hey, a lot of people feel like lame is a slur in, in the disability communities. I don't know if you, you know that, or if that's part of what you're doing, but heads up. And I was like, I, I had no idea. Like, I, and it makes sense, but I only really heard, heard the word lame in the kind of biblical sense when talking about people who are lame. I didn't really think it was used in common parlance, but I don't move in those circles. I don't have those sensibilities. And I figured, you know what? It's not funny enough to hurt those people. It's not worth it. So I changed it. And I was like, yeah, cool, fair cop. I'll do it. It's not, not worth doing that anymore. And just learned something and changed it. When do you remember the first time you realized that you made it funny? <laughs> I don't know. I know my, my parents always have stories about funny things I said when I was little. It's always been, yeah, as far back as I can remember, I've always, always been a silly bugger. I mean, I was diagnosed with ADHD earlier this year in January. Uh, and really, it's very, very obvious. But, you know, one of the things is, you know, looking back, you know, when I, when I first sort of said, mum, you know, I've been diagnosed. You haven't got ADHD. You never acted up at school. You're never the naughty kid. I was like, you know, no, I was the funny kid. And I definitely did act up and I definitely spoke up and I definitely interrupted, but I was also fucking funny. So it was always appreciated. There were always zingers. So yeah, look, I can't think of any examples off the top of my head, but I've been great. I'm I'm very funny. It's a great way to cope with uh, negative emotions. <laughs> I'm a bit older than you, but I'm guessing with a multisyllabic surname like yours, that humour would have come in handy. Yeah, uh, look, I think I'm in, in 82 and my old man uh, moved out here when he was two years old. And I think in terms of like, you know, obviously I have Greek heritage, but was never really, never really copped the anti-Greek sentiments that dad definitely did yeah. at school. And I mean, I was, I was growing up around the same time as uh, Acropolis Now, Wogs Out of Work, you know, Con the Fruiterer. So there were all these, you know, ethnic comedy things in the world at that time. And that was like, that was a way I think that I related to the people around me. It was like that they, everyone knew the, 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 the Greek fruit seller or, you know, the, the dry cleaners, which was what my family, family business was. And, you know, the fact that there were people like my yeah, yeah and my papa on television that I could talk about at school. Yeah, I, I, it wasn't that big a deal for me. Oh, I'm happy to hear that. Was there ever any doubt that you would have a career on stage? That's hard to say. I think I never really wished for it. It just kind of, you know, I made other plans and then it was always happening. And then it became what I did. Like I, I went to uni, I started off, um, got out of high school and no one in my family had really been to uni before. 
so I, I figured, well, you just kind of keep doing what you're good at at school, uh, which was physics and chemistry and um, economics. So I started doing that and then kind of got into third year and um, was doing a, a lab assignment, for, a chemistry lab assignment, which takes like a, was like a full day practical assessment. And I messed it up at the last minute, which meant I had to do it again. And I realized that I'm like, oh, after this lab thing again. And I realized that if I continued on that path, that that was going to be my job. I'm like, oh. Oh, I don't want to do that. And I mean, I had, had always been doing theater sports, had always doing school plays and, and, and um, sketch comedy shows and reviews, um, and then transferred over to doing an arts degree and, and graduated with a degree in performance studies and uh, Arthurian and literature and classical mythology. And in my honors year, took a sketch comedy show with some friends to Melbourne Comedy Festival. And then it got picked up by Channel 10 and turned into the Ronnie Johns half hour. And then, you know, just, just kept making stuff and kept doing stuff and scraping by sometimes but, uh, at this point I'm nearly 39 and it's like well I've paddled out to sea uh, on this lovely journey and I cannot see land anymore so I may as well keep paddling <laughs> uh, mate don't worry you, you, you're doing all right man <laughs> you're doing you're, doing, you're uh, doing all right and and you know just giving your academic background there just to hark back to you playing at the top of your intelligence you can absolutely see that where it might be a dick joke, but it's a dick mm. joke that has its genesis in someone who understands how a subatomic particle can interact with another one. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. I'm absolute galaxy brain. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, but that, that's really important. Tell me about how did you come around getting an ADHD diagnosis at nearly 40 years old? What was yeah. the, I should really um, sort this out? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I think uh, there's a few things. I mean, a friend was diagnosed and when she kind of uh, spoke about her experiences, some of those things kind of rang true. Also, I did a TED talk on anxiety back in 2017. And off that TED talk, a number of people kind of spoke to me and said, well, you know, you, you talked about your lived experience of anxiety. There were a few things you talk about in there that seemed to be ADHD symptoms. And then I, m much like how I kind of discovered my gender stuff was I did a lot of reading and was like, oh, actually, yeah, this all kind of makes sense. And a whole bunch of things clicked into place. And as I find is common with Jordan, Jordan like researches what might be wrong with Jordan. And once Jordan is satisfied that she has diagnosed herself, then goes to the doctor um, as opposed to being like, hey, is this thing? So, yes, it, particularly, the, you know, the last couple of years since Axis of Awesome finished up and have been working solo since that time and ha not having the structure of collaborators and having not having uh, people taking the load of the tasks that I, I really suck at and not having to be responsible for my own executive function and things like that uh, really kind of suffered the last couple of years. And so really needed to get that diagnosis uh, at the start of this year. And luckily did just before kind of COVID hit and was able to kind of weather that, you know, initial couple of months and that worry with some kind of, well, I mean, I was diagnosed amphetamines. So look, I was very speedy and very productive. Um, <laughs> But if it's anything like my my friend who has, um, he was in his early 30s when he got diagnosed mm. and oh, let's just say it was someone that I used to play in bands with back yeah. in the day and let's just say it was someone who had a bit more of an appetite for amphetamines than I did, even though sure. I did. Uh, I was like, Jesus, really going after that gear? It turns <laughs> out it was self-medication because it did yeah. something very different to him than it did to me. And now when he's on the Dexies, he's like, he will sleep like a baby. Yeah, well, you know? the thing is, it's, it, you know, if you if someone needs a coffee to go to bed, um, <laughs> then it's 
good sign that they're um, they got ADHD. Well, it's it's so so fascinating that you know this amphetamine, this drug that we've been told to be so terrified of, mm. the person who is affected by this um, condition, their brain is so vastly different from everybody mm. else's that this drug, which will otherwise keep someone awake till next Tuesday, writing n- nasty Facebook rants about the aliens who are coming to get us or whatever, will just mm. go, oh, finally, quiet, yeah, sleep, totally. brilliant. You know, and and mechanically, you know, way it was. Um, have been explained to me is that, you know, ADHD brains lack dopamine, in the, you know, the number theories and the mechanisms there, and amphetamines put dopamine in the brain. So without dopamine, you know, which is the which is the neurotransmitter that kind of makes you satisfied with the work that you're doing or the tasks that you're on, without that there, you're constantly looking for new sources of dopamine. So it's, you're like, well, this is not going to be rewarding. This is not going to be rewarding. I've got to try this. I've got to try this. And you, you fry out because nothing satisfies. And then you begin to rely on other chemicals that your body produces to motivate you, like adrenaline, which is why people with ADHD can never start working on something until the night before and then will absolutely smash it out the night before and can re- reliably do so because of the reliance on adrenaline. And sort of realizing that, yes, so many of my relationships with people or with work or with all sorts of things are in this ADHD mindset. And there's a lot of readjusting to being on medication because it's not all, I'm, I'm not like there's, there's pros and cons because ADHD is a, it's a superpower in, in a lot of other ways. Like the hyper-focus that you can get from it sometimes when, when a task is actually re- rewarding is incredible. You can react very well because in, in crises, I, but I found now because I'm medicated, I'm a little more forgetful because I'm not constantly running thoughts through my head over and over again. And that was a way that I, I actually remembered things by worrying about them. And I have a lot, you know, as I said, problems now, a little bit of problems with object permanence that I, I forget about things if I don't see them. Explains why I have action figures all over my shelves and, yeah, all sorts of things I've learned about myself. As someone who has had to, I'm back on meds at the moment, I'm back mm-hmm. on SSRIs, I was off for a while. And I wonder if this experience is similar to yours. I had to change meds. When I was coming off all the antipsychotics and mm. uh, my psychiatrist was very clever fella, devilishly handsome, younger than me, super weird when you start, you'll know, you'll get this, when you start seeing really clever doctors who are younger than you, you're like, fuck, oh, yeah. what have I been doing with my life? <laughs> uh, he was brave enough to change his hypothesis and go, I think it's OCD. Let's change your meds. And I had to take a week off of everything. And I was doing breakfast radio at the time, Jordan, and I remember that week when I was fallow, he did give me some diazepam. I let Audrey hold it. I'm like, don't tell me where it is in the house. Just if you think I need it, I'll take it because mm. I'm not to be trusted with such things. Valium, yeah. that's what Valium is, everybody. That week, I was faster and funnier than I mm. had been in years. And it was fucking incredible to be on breakfast radio being just pew, 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 pew. Yeah. But the rest of the day, my teeth were fucking grit and my fingernails were in the table and I was a cunt, you know? Totally. And I was like, totally. this is unsustainable. I can't have both. I can't have both. So I'm wondering where you all, and like I had to be with that fact that this thing I wanted to be so good at, I needed to be at, be okay with it being at about 65 to 70% of what I wished it could be if mm. I was to have a sustainable life with people I love. Did you find coming onto these meds, did you notice anything different about your creativity? Were you worried at all? It's hard to say. I think, look, I think I'm more productive. You know, I, I could have a billion more ideas, but not, uh, but a fraction of them would come to fruition. And, you know, if I have a fraction of the ideas, but actually produce more of them, 
then I think that is a that is a, a well good trade off. To be honest, I think when I'm off, like when my meds kind of taper off, that's when I'm kind of foggy. I think if I if I take like a whole day off and then I can be quite creative. And and I think with with Dexies and stuff, you can be a bit flexible on them. You you can take a day off a week, not using them, and you know have your original brain back. This podcast does not recommend self-diagnosing or self-managing. Well, I mean, this is my, this is my doctor. This is this is my doctor. This is my oh, doctor fuck. saying. <laughs> my doctor saying, "Hey, if you don't take them on the weekends, if you function better without them on the weekends, like if it's not a work day and you don't need to make your brain productive, then uh, okay. and you find that you're enjoying your life better and you are more functioning in social settings in in whatever, then we can do that. We can that will that can be part of the plan." Wow. And and you know, and there's advantage to that as well is that you you know you can slow tolerances and dependences with your doctor don't don't whatever yeah so I think it's a it's a bit different from from antidepressants and things like that because you don't need Bex to build in your system you yeah take it, it works a couple of hours later it wears off which is what I, it reminds me I haven't taken mine today fuck it's always <laughs> a shit I have this I have this way of remembering to take them every morning and um something went wrong in my routine and now I've. Oh, yeah. I've just got to three in the afternoon and forgot that I haven't taken my meds, so I'm six hours late. I have accidentally, because I'm so, because I have to take several over the course of the day, I'm now just so accustomed to going up to the cupboard, taking my pill, you know, and now I needed to take an antihistamine. I went up and I took a double double my dex dose. I'm like, oh, I meant to take an antihistamine. And, well, we're going to have a fun morning, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> what, what did your partner report once everything started working differently um, with the meds on board? I don't think she's really known me unmedicated. I mean, family, family-wise, they, they definitely notice the difference. Yeah, and I think it was one of those things that quite often people have anxious symptoms or depressive symptoms as a result of ADHD not being dealt with, and right. so you, many people, particularly adults who've been diagnosed, will be treated for anxiety, will be treated with antidepressants, and those things won't work. And so you often have those experiences of, okay, I'm on antidepressants now. I still can't do stuff. I still can't begin things because they're, they're not actually solving the problems. They're numbing a symptom. Right, 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 right. Because they, they're doing the right thing that they're supposed to do, but that's a different part. The executive function part of the brain is the part that's being that that needs seeing to. Yes, yeah. ADHD is an executive function yeah. issue. I mean, I also think about you know neuroatypicality and thinking brains like mine would have been really useful in a differently structured society. And thinking about, you know, what we often describe as uh, disorders, you know, ADHD, the, D, the last days for disorder, which is just neurodivergence. It's just different kinds of brains. And I think, well, a brain like mine that is, you know, reactive in an emergency and uh, is constantly looking for new stimulus, someone who's always exploring and trying to find new things uh, would be really useful in a different kind of society, in a society that had to really, Locate, you know, a nomadic society or, you know, it's just, you know the, the kind of person who needs to go out and explore and find where water is or all those sorts of things. And I also think, you know, other things, you know, I'm, I'm also on the spectrum and I kind of think, well, you know, who wrote the bloody dictionaries? Who, who meticulously took maps? And it was probably people who were, who were on, on the autism spectrum as well. And I think now the structures of our society are so different and so rigid and what we require of people is different and in, in needed in different proportions. And I think a lot of people kind of struggle when they've got brains that don't 
and they don't have the opportunity to fit their brain in the opportunities they have in the, in the world that they have. I think you're, you're absolutely right. You know, we were talking about our great-great-great-grandfathers and grandmothers mm. before. You know, where does the person with that neurodiversity fit into their society? You're absolutely right. Who, as a cartographer, who's got the time to sit and and laying out knots of rope to find out how deep an ocean mm. is, you know, for, and re- and, for and months at a time? Yeah. Who's remembering the shapes of coastlines relative yeah. to the things that they've passed? Yeah, like, and like, God, you only have to look, and one, I think the most famous one, obviously, would be a Leonardo da Vinci. You look mm. at just the explosive creativity coming out of that person mm. and the the sexual diversity coming out of that person, let's be honest, if you've seen mm. any of his work. Like, you can't tell me that that person didn't have what we would today describe as something very different, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's absolutely mind-blowing how how he would think like that. And I, and I do wonder in, in, in other societies where um, we're very obviously very lucky mm-hmm. to live in, in this country where, you know, you hear horrible stories of people. Particularly now. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. you hear horrible stories of people, you know, being basically chained to a post. Like, ah, mm. that yeah. kid's never going to be anything, but we can't kill him. And then they, li- they live in the backyard chained to a tree for the rest of their mm. lives. And it's fucking horrible. Uh, so we're, but I, I find it really interesting that, y- yes, the divergent from the norm is it's almost like in order to fit in with everybody else there needs to be a way to mediate that uh, Mm. divergence because otherwise it's just too far away from everybody else and being able to function in a society get your groceries figure out how to fill out a form at the bank all this stuff becomes beyond your capability yeah, totally. And I, I know a lot. I'm, th- there is a lot of things that are very easy for neurotypical people, very difficult for me. I'm very, I have a real tough time, particularly now, maintaining my friendships because of that object permanence thing. I don't think of my friends unless I see them wow. uh, or I am reminded that they exist. And because I quit Facebook because it was doing all this harm to me, I don't have those reminders of like, hey, reach out to a friend and just say good day and make sure they're okay and just lubricate your, your relationships. And I'm finding, a lot of non-neurotypical people, we're kind of reaching out and like, I still care about you. I just haven't written to you all year. And I've had that conversation about 20 times in this last week, just being like, I still want to be friends with you. I've just been locked in my house and I just didn't been doing other things. And I just didn't think that we were about anything. And do you hate me? 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 <laughs> See, there's a whole rejection sensitivity. In tell, tell me about, because I mean, there's something that I've done quite a while ago and I say it on the show all the time. I, mm took Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook off of my phone after mm. basically after I um, read the Rod, Roger McNamee book, Zucked, and I gave my wife my screen time passcode. So even if I wanted, I can't even navigate to those domains. I can't look yeah. at them through a URL. I can't install them on my phone. And my life since I've got off Facebook is fucking amazing. Oh, and- same. I, I installed Timeline Eradicator for Facebook, I think about two years ago. So if I go to facebook.com, I won't have a timeline in the middle of the page. Uh, it'll just be an inspirational quote about productivity. But I still have access to events and messages. And if I want to look at a particular person or a particular page, I can do that. But I just don't have that feed of nonsense going through the middle. And now that I've been away from it for so long, when I've taken the opportunity to actually look at it, it is nonsense. A fraction of it is actually things my friends have written or things relevant to their lives. And it's all ads, it is all memes and, and just videos that uh, algorithm has worked out will keep me engaged, not entertained, not fulfilled, not enlightened, engaged. 
And when I did that, I found I, I spent 40 minutes watching a video of a man in a room with a, a, a beer bottle at one end and he was throwing a spoon, trying to land the spoon in the bottle. And I watched that for 40 minutes going, it's going to go in. And it did. I'm like, that took 40 minutes out of my day and it has not done anything except kept me looking at the screen. And that video doesn't work on everybody. And the algorithm knows, though, from all its studying of me over the last decade, that that will keep me watching. And I hate that. I hate that it can snare me with nonsense. And I hate that I am susceptible to that. But, you know, that is the sum total of all the data it has on me and the understanding of me. And, yeah. So, I, I mean, I'm still on Twitter, but but I feel like that is more of a working platform for me that I go out and do gags and I stay engaged. I, get, I stay engaged with the news through Twitter. And TikTok is another one that catches me. I've got to tell myself I'm only, I can only create on TikTok. I can't spend too long looking at TikTok. Right. That's that's a very very slippery slope. TikTok mm. is it's a and I'm, I'm like, it's extraordinary that mm. we are so easily hackable. We only require a certain amount of variable reward, and the algorithm only needs to figure out. Oh, they like these. They stay on these things microseconds longer than those things. Let's just give them more of those things, but not in a yeah. row. Every third one, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. there we go. I was thinking this morning. What are the things that I don't like? I don't like algorithms to tell me my news. I don't like algorithms to tell me what my friends are up to. And mm. I, I kind of on the fence about algorithms suggesting what things I might like to purchase uh, yeah. when, it, when it comes to like an eBay. Like I don't mind the people who viewed this also viewed that. I don't mind mm-hmm. this. What I have absolutely no problem with as algorithmically is I do not mind at all an algorithm feeding me music I haven't don't know about yet. Yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm okay with that because it's got no political bent to it at all. It's like, oh, man, you like Luther Vandross? You need to hear what Teddy Pendergrass was Mm. doing before he went solo. And then I'm like, holy shit, how did I know about Harold Melvin and the Blue Nose version of Don't Treat Me This Way? This is amazing. You're going to lose that pretty soon once your algorithm gets messed up with the wiggles and uh, everything else, Uh, once they start playing all the kids' stuff on your Spotify. Mate, no, we don't do any wiggles. Me and Wolf, we've been on Teddy Pendergrass all week, and it's been Mm. amazing. You've got to let it go. Oh, yeah. But in a little while, they'll they'll have agency of their own, and then they'll... (laughs) I want, and then sooner or later there'll be seven, and you'll be listening to K-pop nonstop on the drive to school. At least there's choreography with K-pop and yeah. discipline. You don't think? Come on, those oh. children are whipped into shape in those K-pop there's no schools. Doubt. I just, I just have to listen to the same Blackpink song on loop. Uh, <laughs> it's extraordinary, isn't it? Amazing how you like say, for example, I, I can only compare it to what happened when what they called the British invasion, where the Brits mm. took a culturally appropriated form of music that was copied from the African Americans in the South, copied by white people, and then the Brits kind of copied both of those and then mm. fed it back to the Americans, and they went, "Wow, this is news!" Like, no, it's an echo of what you've done. All yeah. art is a conversation. All art is, a, is is a conversation, and that what. The Koreans are doing and the Japanese are doing with their pop is this extraordinary reflection through the yeah. prism of no, we just fucking get shit done. Exactly. And- well, it's, it's it's also that it's something new and something old simultaneously. It's you know it's nostalgia for something you haven't seen yet. It's fucking great. Yeah, I mean we see that everywhere right now. That's hacking people's sense of nostalgia is you know it's Stranger Things. It's I mean it's on me on this fucking dragon. Um, um, but look, that's the thing. I think I think on social media platforms, I love Twitch. I feel like Twitch is probably healthier in the same way as if you go to the casino, just play poker, right? Because at least if you're playing poker, you're playing with other people. When you're on Twitch, you are 
watching other people, you're watching other creators, and you're watching them live, and you are building. You're not playing against the house. Yeah, you'll always lose if you play against the house. Yeah, every single and, uh, time. And the house takes its tithe. Jeff Bezos is definitely making a good chunk of cash, um, <laughs> but I feel like I don't have the problems I have creating art on other platforms as I do on Twitch, which is uh, I'm very glad I've kind of made it my home the last little bit. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I really get the feeling that where Twitch is now is where podcasting was in 2010. Mm. Yes. Absolutely. And the as yet to arrive Joe Rogan of Twitch, he or she hasn't shown up yet. I don't think. Like this, someone's about to absolutely break through. Yeah, because we're only sort of seeing, and it's been accelerated from COVID, but we are now seeing seasoned performers, professionals into that space Mm. and create in that space, whereas it was very amateur, and there's nothing wrong with amateur, but the space is getting gentrified, right? It, it is people taking notice. Yeah, but, but the the great thing when the, when there are people who have who don't know what rules they're breaking, they create this space of like, oh no, absolutely, I can have text all over the screen, I can have text all yeah. over my face. But me coming from a TV background goes, oh no, 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 I have to have a clean shot, I have to have this. I'm gonna give a shit. But I'm gonna put pictures all over myself. I don't give a fuck. So yeah, I'm like, I'm mixing a 480p source and a 320 source, and I don't care if it's got a watermark on it. That's part of the aesthetic. That's the yeah, exactly what you're saying is like like me personally I'm probably never going to use copyrighted footage but I mm. see stuff that people do with copyrighted footage and people like basically live commenting over live television like full stream piracy which I'll never do that is uh, fair dealing under Australian your uh, comment and critique are fair use of copyrighted material hold the phone mm-hmm. I'm quite familiar with the old uh, fair dealing laws talk me through this yeah. Rascopolis, <laughs> because this is something that I've been quite interested. Because I currently, never mind. We'll have to talk about another stuff because I think it would be it'd be very interesting. It's 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 a big conversation. But look, there's fair dealing of copyright materials. That doesn't mean you're not going to get uh, in mischief. It doesn't mean someone's not going to try and sue you or, or shut you down. But the law may very well be <laughs> on your side. There's not a lot of case law about it in Australia. So uh, let's see what happens. Is it okay if we talk about Jordan ten years ago and Jordan today? Because as I was talking with Audrey over lunch, I couldn't think of someone of as high a profile as you who mm. has transitioned. I don't yeah, think there's I'm, anyone in Australian culture that is of your, your visibility. Yeah, I am, I am Australia's premier uh, roller skating transsexual. Um, 
I'm very happy that you roller skate. I'm also a roller skater. I've oh, never excellent. been an inline guy. My step turns are fantastic. Oh, fantastic. I'm currently nursing some very bad injuries in my foot. Uh, I may never skate again, but we'll see. Oh, no. We'll see. I've got like a, a couple of fractures in my big toe and some oh, nerve damage. And from a skating accident? Just from roller derby. Just stress oh. on, on that toe. Like I, I'm a jammer uh, is the position I play, which means I, my job is to skate laps jump around people, smash into people. And so I do a lot of footwork, but I also am very heavy. And that has meant I've put a lot of stress on particularly my left foot. Roller derby, that roller derby plays a very interesting point in my life. It, it, mm. had, it has, through more than one person that I know, has allowed them to transform and in, in many ways heal a giant amount of trauma because it is, mm. a, it is a way to be physical in a community sense where we can play rough, but it's safe to play rough in a very community-supported uh, way. And it's a community that's, you know, very queer, um, very uh, knowledgeable about cultures around consent and about other people's bodies and things. I think one thing from, I know we've jumped topics, but being like a trans woman, I had experiences throughout my childhood of being told that my body was strong. You know, I played rugby from the age of eight uh, through till about 22. I had no doubt that I could play full contact sport or could get hit or could hit the ground. But then playing derby with a lot of cisgender women who will come and do, and, and for derby, there's a lot of training before you're allowed to do contact. You've got to make sure that everyone can skate well and skate safely. It's and fresh meat. You've got to go through it. Yeah, you've got to go through it. The look on some cisgender women's faces when they get hit for the first time and, you know, hit the ground or take a big spill, quite often there's this look in their face of like, oh, that was kind of fun. And I didn't break. And let's do it again. And there's, there are so many people who get that sense of affirmation. It's like their, their whole life, they've been gaslit that their bodies were much weaker than they, they actually are. And I think, you know, when we talk about transgender women in sport, there's a lot of that attitude in there that if you let the trans women play against cis women, all the cis women are going to get broken. And it's absolutely not the case. And there are cis women who absolutely destroy me. You know, I'm, I'm a very strong person, I'm a very heavy person, and I'm, I'm, I'm tall. But I am not the best, and that's a big conversation. Big conversation. What's the thing that people get wrong the most? What's the biggest misconception that people have about you and your gender identity? I think that's changed over time. I think initially a lot of people, you know, they conflate, particularly because I came out at a time just before Caitlyn Jenner had kind of started her journey publicly. So we weren't talking trans at all at that time. So early on, a lot of people were kind of confiding with sexuality. And, and, you know, a lot of people were like, well, how can, you, how can you be a woman and still like women and all that kind of thing? And I think, I think a lot of people thought m more of me would change and that I would become more feminine in my attitudes, uh, my humour, in my hobbies, in my whatever. I mean, that, all that stuff that stayed pretty consistent. And so I think when people kind of get some of that stuff wrong about me, a lot of people kind of question their own prejudices through me, things that they never really assumed. Like I know, I know, you know, with Christmas with my family, it's, it's kind of in this thing where the men go out into the backyard and play cricket and the women go into the kitchen and chat. And then suddenly there was this Christmas of like Jordan standing in the middle and then everyone sort of realised, oh, I would prefer to play cricket too. <laughs> um, <laughs> and just everyone's placements and responsibilities were just, were like, everyone just kind of goes, oh yeah, now that Jordan is in this environment, I've got some questions. So I think there's a lot of that 
that happens around me and, you know, what we presume about, about genders. There has been, up until only a few years ago, it's 2020, good Lord, but up until only a few years ago, there was so, basically all people knew about anyone that wasn't heteronormative, it was essentially the butt of the joke from the nerdy guy in the Tom Hanks film Bachelor Party. You know, it's mm. it's the, the guy who, oh, yeah. a few years ahead of me, who went to schoolies and had this sexual encounter. It's binary. You're this or you're that. And if you're this, yeah. you like to put your genitals towards this. And if you're that, you like to put your genitals towards that. And that's the end of the story. Don't confuse mm. me. But nothing on this planet, as someone who has a background in physics... <laughs> Yeah, nothing's really binary. No, totally. There's shades of spectrums of everything. Yeah, I'm furious when people say there are only two genders. It's a basic biology, and I'm like, biology is complicated. It is far from basic. If you are talking about basic biology, then you are talking about biology that is taught to children. There is incredible amounts of diversity, and and the very nature of science is not to uh, determine the rules and then instruct people to obey them. It is to notice patterns and try and infer systems and commonalities and, and things from it. But the very basis of science is if you notice something that contradicts your previous understanding, that calls your previous understanding into question. And you're constantly reassessing your previous understandings. You're constantly reclassifying. You're constantly changing and learning. That is that is the backbone of science. That is the scientific theory. That is everything. There are not two genders because we observe me. You know, there is difference. There is nuance. There is outliers, and there is uh, more than you know because you have suddenly confronted it. And that. Often, I'm imagining when you meet someone for the first time, they have to go through everything you just described in the blink of an eye when they yeah. put their hand out to shake yours. <laughs> I mean, sometimes, I mean, on a day-to-day basis, I, I, I pass reasonably well, so I know a lot of people don't really think about it. And, I, you know, I, I, I have a McDonald's voice. So when I'm, like, comfortable in talking, I just talk with this voice. But when I'm at McDonald's, I have a slightly more femme voice, and that's my McDonald's voice. So I think most people encounter me in the McDonald's mode. Largely because, you know, I don't want to have to have people coming to those realisations every second of my day. That's extraordinary because it was once explained to me because early on in my my journey out of the Mm. gravitational pull of my upbringing as I was trying to explore what it was to be anything but heteronormative in this world, one of my questions to one of my gay friends was, well, and it wasn't particularly to him, it was to a mm. friend. I was like, how come he minces about so much? And I think we were having beers and mm. this particular bloke went up to go for a piss or something. And the, as the boy went, he went, I'll see you later, Sweeney. And my gay friend said, oh, come on, Dale, there's no S in hamburger as a way to like, <laughs> so like stop turning it on so much. Yeah. And I asked him, I was like, why does he do that? And he goes, oh, so he doesn't have to come out 20 times a day. Yeah. That's yeah. why he does it. He probably has a normal voice, but yeah. he minces and telegraphs and, and does his hands like this and speaks like this so he doesn't have to come out 20 fucking times a day. Totally. Oh, I've got a daughter you'd love to meet. Um, sorry, Mrs. Jenkins. Uh, yeah. How do I put this? <laughs> yeah, and I think, I think those behaviours are, are fluid over time as well. Like I think we probably see less of that because it isn't extraordinary to have a gay person in your community now, and I think younger people don't necessarily need to flag their identities with their behaviours yeah. as much. And, you know, I think we, we kind of notice that with gender-diverse young people that, that they are less binary in their gender presentations. 
than people of my my age and older because it's like in order to live comfortably in a society, if you can camouflage your identity to the, the passing glance, sometimes there, there is safety there. What would you say to people who are listening who are starting to notice as their little kids get older and they're going, oh, hang on, there might be something up here. What would you say to parents of kids and they're starting to notice a few differences? Yeah, look, I mean, first of all, there's nothing to be afraid of with young people. I think there are, uh, particularly young young trans people, the critics and the arseholes in the media who are kind of stoking the, the fires of you know, the anti-trans young people sentiment are playing off a very real sense of fear that a lot of parents have, uh, which is what if I do something or what if my child does something that they grow to regret? That is a valid fear to have. That is a valid feeling. And I don't know any good parent who wouldn't have that feeling about their child in, in general. And by placing a fire under that feeling when it comes to trans kids, it's a very deceptive and, and a horrible way to talk about the topic. Because at its core, in terms of uh, medical intervention or, or anything like that, there is nothing that you need to do for a child who is transgender. An adolescent, it, it's different, but for, for a child, anyone under 15 or 16, there is no medical intervention. There's nothing. There's nothing. Nothing at all. All you need to do to affirm a young child's identity is to listen to what they are saying, to agree with them when they speak about their identity, and to let them play with the toys they want to play with, let them wear the clothes they want to wear, let them have the friends that they want to have, and let them choose their pronouns, change their names, and just support and love them. Like, that's all you need to do with a young child. And, you know, when we're talking about adolescents and teenagers, we still have that that sense of not intervening before a, a particular age. And the way that we do that is, well, the way that doctors do that is by delaying puberty, giving gender diverse kids or suspected gender diverse kids extra time before puberty happens. Because the thing is, you focus on, you know, they often focus on the child who is convinced to transition who is not trans and the the woe and the and the suffering that they would experience the rest of their lives and that woe and that suffering is what trans kids uh, who don't transition feel it, it is what we call gender dysphoria when your um, presentation the way people treat you doesn't match your sense of self so you you're faced with this thing well that how do we help the trans teenagers and how do we make sure that kids who are not trans don't make mistakes and we do that by having experts who administer things to these children and you educate and you study and uh, you have rigorous guidelines uh, and all of that is in place. All of that exists and a lot, of people, a lot of people who are very smart do a lot of work on making sure people who need treatment get treatment. But it's like saying, well, I know we've got some kids who've got broken legs, but maybe we shouldn't help them just in case, you know, we put somebody else's leg in a cast who doesn't need it. Um, that's probably not the you know, best metaphor, but there are absolutely transgender kids. I knew from when I was four years old, if I was able to intervene uh, at the age of 16 or 17, delay puberty and transition at that time, I would have saved a lot of fucking money on, on hair removal. Um, <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> it's so lovely to, to hear you speak, Jordan. You have <laughs> such... An extraordinary way of describing things and, and communicating just from 
like I, I'm just like I was in tears just then when you were talking, and you know, my eyes welled up, and I'm just like, where did this empathy come from? Where did this amount of empathy and compassion inside you come from? Because it's very easy to, as you mentioned before, fear and anger is a is a pretty valid place of defence. Mm. You know, and and if you're feeling under attack, it's a valid place to to go to to go fuck you. Don't tell me you know what I can fucking do with my self. Where did the empathy come from, Jordan? Um, there's a few things. A few years ago, I made a New Year's re- uh, resolution. One year, I, I misheard the lyrics to the Macklemore song, uh, the one about gay marriage, uh, where the chorus is, I can't change even if I try. And I misheard that lyric and I thought it was, I can't hate even if I try. And it was around New Year's and I thought, what if I spent a whole year not being hateful? Uh, No matter what somebody else did, I wasn't allowed to hate them. And I had to try and solve every problem I had, interpersonal problem I had with people uh, with compassion and understanding and conversation. And that was a big thing. Another thing is I'm I'm incredibly articulate. And so I I can communicate really well. So I I rarely get frustrated not being able to get through to someone. I'm really good at getting through to people. And I largely owe that to having a very stubborn father and a very argumentative father and having to be very patient in order to get get ideas through through to him. I, I also principally believe, I don't believe in evil, except in very rare cases. But I think people do bad things all the time but it's never because they're evil it is because they're greedy it's because they're selfish it's because they're worried because they're scared all sorts of motivations behind things but the evil that we see and and is often portrayed by demagogues is it's cartoonish and it's not real um, most people think that they are good and most people are trying to do the good thing and most people are trying to look out for themselves and, and their families and stuff like that no one but a psychopath or a sociopath wishes harm on another person simply because, you know, they may wish harm on someone for their entertainment, which takes us back, you know, earlier because it's funny. Uh, but even that you can reason with and rationalise if, if you can communicate. So I have a lot of faith in being able to communicate with people. I, I don't think I, I live so much uh, of my life in shame. I don't think I ever want to use shame to motivate people. I think shame is a terrible motivator anyway. I think if you can listen and you can talk and if you can understand, how wondrous and beautiful that we are so different. Isn't it cool that you can have lived a completely different life to me and have a completely different experience and you can tell me about it and I can understand something new and you can do the same with me. And isn't that fascinating? Isn't that interesting? We're not the same and we're not equal and we can talk about it and we can understand and we can change and we can build new things that are really cool and fun and wouldn't that be nice if we did more of it you know i often i've been thinking like i'm thinking a lot about uh, indigenous uh, australians and, and aboriginal people and lately i've just been like how cool would it be to actually get a treaty wouldn't it be cool if we had leaders who are committed to working out the centuries of fucked that is in our country wouldn't it be cool to sort that out and move forward in a new direction, making new stuff together. It would be really fucking hard, but wouldn't it be cool? It would be so rad. <laughs> I am on board. I will vote. Where can I send my check? 
<laughs> oh, I could never go into politics. <laughs> uh, no, but you can support the people that do. Jordan, hearing you speak like that, you can't be what you can't see. And to just simply say out loud how you were able to reframe the things that you were reacting to and, you know, acknowledging that you needed to work hard to get around it. But then just that really simple trick of, would it be cool? Would it be cool if you figured out a way that we could all do this and then do something together? Wouldn't that be, would that that'd be fucking cool, man? Yeah. That is such, I'm so grateful that you were able to say that. I could really talk to you for a long, 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 long time, but I'm aware of the time and I'm aware of your extraordinary time. Scott, I've got to finish this, uh, this Dracula dance. Um. Yes, you're very busy pulling apart vintage video games and putting them back together for your <laughs> Twitch stream. You blow my mind. Thank you for riding Falcor this whole time. For the small oh. amount of time you were in a Street Fighter car. Yes. But thank yes. you for Falcor. If people want to support you, in the work that you're doing, would it be to subscribe to your Twitch channel? Would that be the best thing? Yeah, jump on board on Twitch. I mean, I'm across uh, Twitch, Facebook, Twitter uh, as Jordan Rasco, but at the moment, most of what I'm what I'm creating is on Twitch, uh, and it's there's a lovely community that hangs out uh, in my channel, and we 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 do all sorts of stuff. We play games, we talk about mental health, we mess about with farts and sound effects and all sorts of stuff. It's I love it. Such a beautiful community. Before I go, can I let you know one thing? Please. I'm an exceptional singer and I look great in a mask. So if you could put a word in that, fantastic. <laughs> I know you're an exceptional singer <laughs> and I'll bet you look great in a mask and I'll definitely put the word out. But <laughs> that's the last I can say of it because I don't even know. Until the head comes off, I don't know. But if Falcor shows up on stage... <laughs> Fuck, that'd be, wouldn't that be wild, man? It's, fuck, it's the funnest show ever. It's so <laughs> ridiculously lovely because it means absolutely nothing. There's no mm. prize. Nothing means anything. It's the classic storytelling. It's the, mm. we have all decided that it's important to know what's behind this and now we're just going to have to figure it out. Yep. And then the reveal, that's all it is. It's just, and now here it is. That's it. Yep. It's yep. perfect. It Again. Cradle clean. It was cradle clean. The South Koreans, man. Yeah. And they know what time it is. Exactly. K-pop and, and, uh, and the Masked Singer. Yeah. Um, thank you, Legend. Pleasure. You're Anytime. the best. On another note, at one point, to have some sort of technical conversation with you about how to mm. turn Twitch into something yes. uh, would be wonderful. I would so, uh, what, what adore I thought that. Would, I, could, I could help you build is you could, because people are accruing tra- channel points while they're watching you. They could spend the channel points to change your bicycle into different things. So you could be yes. riding a horse for a little bit. You could be riding uh, a motorbike. You could be yes. riding, you know, you, you could have like half a dozen little things that they could, they could transform it. That would be that would, that would be pretty easy to build. A beautifully wonderful start mm. because, like I said, this is me starting my podcast eight years ago mm. at the time going, fuck, I'm late, but I mm. better start now. So I know I'm late to Twitch, but I'm glad I'm here because oh, yeah. in eight years from now, either Twitch or something that looks like Twitch, mm. That's where we are. I don't, I don't think you're late in Australia. I think Australia is a little bit behind the States and, and, and the UK. So I think Australian Twitch is just just starting. Well, here we are, and I'm glad yeah. to be in this with you. You're the best ever. You must come over and eat food sometime. Please. It would be delightful. Please come around. Jordan, you're amazing. Thank you for joining me today. No worries. My pleasure. Bye-bye now. <laughs> bye. I don't know why we're waving. Oh, because we're... <laughs> <laughs> bye, 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 bye. <laughs> 
That was Jordan Raskopoulos. You can find her on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Jordan Rasko, J-O-R-D-A-N-R-A-S-K-O. Uh, if you're interested, definitely check out her TED Talk and Google up the essays written by Nicola Fierce, which was the pseudonym that she wrote under when she was uh, out to her close friends, but not out publicly. Um, and they're very, very good. Look, I am on Twitch as well. I won't be there for a while because I'm not allowed to ride a bike for quite some time. I could barely walk with one crutch. But, you know, you can find me on Twitch as well. Next week, we're moving into summertime mode here at the podcast. Uh, When we have a summertime here uh, at Better Than Yesterday, we like to go back and have a listen to the biggest episodes, the most powerful episodes that we made during the year. Uh, So what happens around them is the the intro part and the outro part, this part you're listening to right now, that's all brand new, live and current. And the Fridays will still be here, uh, but the interviews will be ones that you may or may not have heard before just to give the whole team a bit of a break as far as booking and and producing the shows go. So take care. I'll be here. I'll see you on Friday. I better get down and look after this baby. Yeah, I better go. All right. Sleep well. Dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 